This is the Ball Talk Pod. Evan Kinsey. Starting now. Good afternoon and thanks for tuning in to the Ball Talk Pod with Evan Kinsey. On today's show, former NBA All-Star, NBA Defensive Player of the Year, author, and motivational speaker, Mark Eaton, joined the show. Mark, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Evan. It's nice to be with you this morning. Mark played for Cypress College and my favorite, the UCLA Bruins in college, and went on to spend 12 seasons with the Utah Jazz at the NBA after his collegiate career concluded. During his time with the Jazz, he led the entire NBA in blocks four times, was named to the NBA All-Defensive Team five times, was named NBA Defensive Player of the Year two times. Mark also still holds two NBA records, both blocks in a single season and career average blocks shots per game. And with all these individual accomplishments and team success, his jersey number 53 retired by the Utah Jazz. After his playing career concluded, Mark has been very successful in motivational speaking, entrepreneurship, and also as an author, with his new book, The Four Commitments of a Winning Team, having come out on April 3rd. Mark, having someone with all the accomplishments and success you have had on and off the court on our show is an absolute honor. We're really glad to have you on. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. We're going to start out the show by discussing your new book, The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. Mark, tell our viewers what your book is about and what inspired you to write it. Well, the book is a culmination of the last 10 years of doing a lot of corporate motivational speaking around the country and combined with my highly unusual story of going from an auto mechanic who couldn't play basketball at age 21 to an NBA all-star. And there's the people that I met along the way that showed me what I needed to do next. Uh, There's some business stories in it as well. Uh, And it's designed to help uh, both people, both personally and professionally, by teaching them the cornerstones of teamwork from the inside out. You know, when you play in the NBA, you have the advantage of uh, learning some things about teamwork that most people don't know or don't experience uh, in their daily lives. And um, and unless you've played on a sports team somewhere along your life, um, you probably don't know really what it's like, what it's what it's all about. And so, in business, I notice that a lot of people use that word teamwork all the time. And I try to bring the, the perspective of having played it at the at the highest level and and relay that in a simple, easy to follow way in the book. Like you said, you've seen plenty of facets of life, whether it's from your time as a mechanic, an author, an entrepreneur, an announcer, or as a basketball player. You have seen it all. Most of our viewers are sports fans, but what can your book bring to all people, not just NBA fans, and what can it show them? Well, I think first and foremost, it shows them the power of uh, working and playing together that, uh, you know, kind of that rising tide raises all ships metaphor that um, that if they're really spend a little bit more time thinking about the people around them as well as focusing on the things that they really do well and staying in their own lane, um, that great things can happen. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a story also of perseverance, uh, but, it's, but it's also an inspiring story of of, the, of continuing to work through some disappointments and some challenges, and the ultimate uh, prize at the end of the at the end of the game, because I um, I continue to stay after it. So I think that's a that's a type of story that works both ways, both uh, you know in the in the boardroom and in the, in the factory, and and as well as in your home life. 
And where can people find your book at? Uh, my book is available uh, on pretty much everywhere, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and um, uh, many other retailers around the country have, have picked it up. Uh, but <clears throat> Amazon's probably the easiest place to find it. Okay. Uh, like you, you said earlier that it was very unusual how you went from being a mechanic to playing basketball. Uh, most people don't know that about you. You were 21 years old. It's typically very late for someone to start college basketball. What made you decide to try playing basketball at that time? Well, I had, I had not had very much success in high school. I sat on the end of the bench. I grew up in Southern California, and uh, I was growing a lot, uh, even as I uh, was still a senior in high school. And the, the coach didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do with me. And it just occurred to me at that point that basketball was probably over with. And I didn't enjoy it that much because I hadn't had any success at it. And being 7.4, obviously, there was a lot of uh, finger-pointing of, wow, this guy's really big. You know, you should be good at basketball. Basketball, and that used to really frustrate me and irritate me as a young man that everybody was telling me what I should be doing with my life and that I should automatically be good at basketball when I really had you know no no training in it. So uh, I decided to, to go to trade school for a year because my father was a diesel mechanic and uh, uh, and a friend of mine was going to Arizona to learn to be an auto mechanic in a, in a year-long certificate program. And so I, I did that and uh, came back to Southern California and, and was working as an auto mechanic in a tire store, um, you know, much like a, 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 a you know, big O tires or a, you know, Blush Schwab tire store, one of those kind of stores. And, and um, I'd done, been there for about a year and a half, and uh, a junior college coach came around the corner. There was a, a, a Cypress Junior College was located about three miles from where I was uh, working, and saw this big tall guy standing there talking to this little customer and, and pulled in and immediately launched into. To, uh, you know, why I should be playing basketball instead of working as a mechanic. And that used to always irritate me because I didn't run around telling everybody else what they should be doing with their life and why was everybody in my business. Um, but over a period of a couple of months, he convinced me to give it a whirl because he knew some things about basketball that I didn't know, which was how to play basketball as a big man. Uh, and he had worked uh, successfully with a couple of other guys who had gone on to have great careers uh, by teaching them some simple steps he had learned from his great uncle who had been a, a, a big man, one of the original big men back in the 1930s and taught me some things about playing basketball from low post that were pretty simple and easy to do. And once I finally went out and visited with him on the basketball court for a half an hour, I was, I was kind of intrigued because he showed me things, you know, as I said, I, I didn't know before. And so at that point, I decided to work out with him in the evenings after work for a few months and just see how it went and um, eventually decided to go back to junior college. So like you said, you started at Cypress, but after two seasons, you went to play at UCLA. What was that transition like, going from to being a mechanic to a community college and then to arguably the most dominant basketball powerhouse ever in UCLA? Well, it was a challenge because, uh, number one, I'd been working my entire time I was in junior college. I worked as a mechanic, and then the second year, um, I got a job selling cars, and I was also working as a bouncer in a nightclub uh, to pay the rent. And uh, so going to UCLA and then being on scholarship was a whole other experience just in and of itself. Uh, and I, the coach at that time was Larry Brown, uh, 
and I, I really felt like going to UCLA, having grown up in Southern California. I mean, you know that that was it. Um, and uh, so I got there, and he didn't seem to really know what to do with me because Larry Brandon played a very fast-paced game. They had just lost to Louisville uh, the year before in the NCAA finals, and and uh, to Daryl Griffith, who who became my teammate years later. And um, and so I, I really didn't know what to do that first year, and I just tried my best, and but things didn't work out too well, and, and I was a little frustrated, and then um, a new coach came in, Larry Brown left to coach the New Jersey Nets, and uh, Larry Farmer took over, who played with Bill Walton, the coach Wooden, and I went to him and I said, you know, what do I need to do next year so that I can play, and, and he gave me a list of things to do, and I, I worked on them that summer, um, and, uh, uh, and then something very interesting happened that summer as well, an interaction I had with Will Chamberlain uh, that I'll tell you about in a, in a minute, but ultimately, the, the two years at UCLA, I, I didn't get much playing time further my senior year, and, and so overall, it was rather disappointing two years of my career, and uh, I thought at the end of my senior year that, that maybe basketball was over again. So, you grew up around UCLA, Southern California. I live in Kentucky, and so Kentucky basketball is huge here, but I'm a UCLA fan. I absolutely love UCLA basketball. Um, and after a somewhat disappointing season for the Bruins, finishing only 21-12, and 12, that's a good record, for, but for UCLA standards, not so much. And fourth in the Pac-12, the Bruins have brought in their third straight top five recruiting class. They do have some misfortune, though, as they lose their best player, Aaron Holiday, to the NBA draft. And then, in my opinion, the heart and soul of the team, Thomas Wells, to graduation. What do you expect to see from this team, who has brought in McDonald's All-American Moses Brown and son of Shaquille O'Neal, Sharif O'Neal? Well, I, I think that's obviously a great recruiting class, and I think uh, um, uh, Steve Alford is, is, uh, is a fine coach, and uh, I expect to see some big things. I, I went and watched them play. They came here, came through Utah here when they were playing um, Utah in the Pac-12 games, and and uh, they weren't quite as dominant as they were, say, a year ago, as you mentioned, when they had those better players, and so it's, it's a bit of a rebuilding year, but I think those are a couple of really top talent guys, and, and uh, like everybody else in college basketball, the challenge is getting those young guys to start understanding how to play together out there on the court, that if they if they win, then their individual value goes up, and uh, uh, I expect to see some, uh, you know, some better results this next season. I think losing Thomas Welsh really hurt the team more than most people expect. Kind of like you, uh, he was the heart and soul of the team. He did the dirty work, got rebounds, blocked shots. I believe that this team should be the favorite for the Pac-12 title, though. The only real threat I see is Oregon, and they're going to be led by a couple of freshmen. It, the Pac-12 is really getting weak. Uh, Arizona lost a lot of recruits during the whole scandal with their head coach, and so the Pac-12 is really low right now. But hopefully this team will be better than last year's team and be as dominant as Alonzo Ball, T.J. Lee team. Alonzo's my guy, so I hope they, they reach, they reach uh, the team because I just love that team. What do you think about that team? You know, I um, again, I can't. Uh, I don't have. I'm not completely up on all the rest of the Pac-12 teams. Um, you know, here in Utah, we follow the Utes and, and, and my former teammate Larry Kristoviak, who they did a nice job this year getting to the NIT finals. Have a 
ultimately losing to Penn State. But, um, you know, overall, uh, I, I think that the, the, the Maroons will be competitive. They always are. There's obviously a lot of pressure in Los Angeles, just like in Lexington, that, uh, you know, that yeah, you've got to be, you've got to have a winning team, and, and anything less is considered to be ultimate failure. And so, and as you mentioned, you know, the Pac 12 did not fare well in the NCAA tournament this year. Uh, so, um, I think there's going to be a lot of shifts, but but ultimately you're in the you're in the West. There's a lot of great ball players that come out of, of you know Los Angeles and and uh, the different metro areas around the West. So I, I think that the, the, they'll still be uh, still be competitive. It's still a very desirable place to, to go play, um, and um, you know and I think you know time will tell uh, the shifts and adjustments that are made that, that um, uh, as the, as the season gets underway next year. So, a player that you've probably seen a lot of living in Utah, it's Kyle Kuzma. He came on the radar after Summer League with the Lakers. I know you're a Jazz guy, but what about the La- what about Kyle Kuzma and the Lakers? What do you think about him? And did you see the star potential while he was at- with the Utes? You know, I, I thought he was a, I thought he was a, a very good player. Uh, I, I think he's surpassed some of my initial um, expectations of him. Uh, he's he's really become a core player for the Lakers, and I think a part of their future going forward. So it's been really fun to watch him. Uh, and the Utes, you know, you don't count him out. I mean, last year they had uh, Jakob Podol plays for the the Raptors now, and 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 Jalen Wright, who's uh, both who both have had uh, a nice contribution with that team, and will look to see more of that as they approach as they, they head into the playoffs here um, but um, but uh, Kuzma has been a nice all around player and, and uh, I think he's figured out the NBA game a little bit better this year and I, and I think uh, you know Coach Walton's done a nice job of bringing him along and, and letting him get his feet wet and, and the Lakers didn't have as great a season obviously as they would have liked but, um, but I, I like the core of their team and I think that given a little more experience and a little more time that uh, that they'll uh, they'll reemerge next year. They had a former Ute on the team this year. Another one, uh, Andrew Bogut, but they released him after a few games. Uh, but after so after your two seasons with the Bruins, you declared for the NBA draft, and the Utah Jazz took a flyer on you, selecting you in the fourth round as they saw you as a potentially dominant defensive center. You played in all 82 games rookie year and finished the season third in the NBA in block shots per game in only 19 minutes per game. Mark, tell our viewers how you think your rookie season went and how you adjusted to the NBA game so quickly after not playing a whole lot in college. Well, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a different story because when I finished my college career at UCLA, um, I didn't really have any options. Uh, uh, no, nobody knew who I was, and this was before the internet. So, unless you were part of somebody's scouting service where they, you know, they mailed these reports around to all the basketball GMs, nobody really knew knew who you were. And so, I I paid my own way to go to a couple of uh, tryout camps where maybe a couple of NBA scouts would show up. There, these were put on primarily by agents who were trying to showcase players to both NBA teams and primarily overseas teams. So I played in a couple of those, and then um, and then my junior college coach and I got out the NBA stats and started calling all the worst teams in the NBA, thinking maybe somebody would give us a chance. And uh, the Jazz showed a little bit of interest. Um, 
and so uh, they came out and watched me play in a summer league in Southern California and offered me a job after doing that. And, you know, being drafted in the fourth round is no guarantee of a, of a roster spot. Uh, but Frank Layden, who was the coach and general manager, gave me a, gave me a chance. And he said, look, if you come to the, 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 to the arena or to the, the um, to Salt Lake City early and get on our weight training program and work with our coaches and get on running, our running program, I'll give you a chance to play for one year. So there wasn't really a, you know, a long-term guarantee, but I felt like um, at least I was given a chance. And so I showed up in Salt Lake, and, um, and it was a little rough at first because the transition, again, from just like going to junior college to, to, to a four-year school is, is challenging. Going from the, the college to the NBA, you have no idea what kind of condition and shape you really need to be in until you go experience that. So it took a lot of work on my part that rookie year to kind of get my body moving and get in shape and figure out the pro game. And Frank Layden was very patient with me. Uh, and uh, I remember one defining moment. I was uh, We were playing the Mavericks uh, down in Dallas. Uh, they were an expansion team that year. And the coach put me in in the second quarter, and, and uh, I blocked like six shots in five minutes. And I remember turning and running up the court and, and looking over the coaching staff on the bench, and they were all looking at each other, nodding at, nodding at each other. And I knew at that moment that I think I could, have, you know, I, I knew I had a future in the game that I could hang and uh, and compete with the other guys out on the court. So it was a it was a challenge, but um, you know, fortunately for me, the, the coaching staff hung with me. Uh, we started changing our game up to one more that was more defensively oriented first and running an opportunity which fit well uh, with my defensive style and um, uh, and the coach, you know, they still just started funneling uh, people to me and the, our our guards and our forwards could take chances trying to steal the ball because they knew I'd get there uh, between their man and the basket and uh, it, it shifted a culture of the team which remains today and and, uh, and and so that's how it started and halfway through my rookie year they traded Danny Shays who was the starting center to, Den- to the Denver Nuggets for 300 grand to make payroll and I got the starting job and I, and I held on to that starting job for over 10 years. One of the big things in your game was blocking shots, but you're a very tall basketball player, but it's a lot more than that. You have to have great verticality, and you got to master that. Tell us, for the younger players in the game, what, how important is verticality, and what can it do for you? Well, um, you know, your vertical leap is, is is somewhat important, but I believe positioning is even more important. If you look back in the 80s, you say, okay, well, who are some of the great rebounders? Uh, one of them you might remember was Bill Lambeer. And Bill Lambeer couldn't, you know, could barely jump over a stick of gum. But at the same time, um, he knew how to position his body. He knew how to get there early. And uh, if you're a younger player, I, I you know, while well, getting stronger and working on your vertical leap, is certainly important. Uh, what's more important to me is how you position your body. How early do you go to the boards? Uh, and I always bring up the, you know, the, the if you want to go back and look at a great rebounder, go watch some highlights of Dennis Rodman. Now, I, don't, I didn't like Dennis Rodman. I, you know, he was a pain in the butt to play against. And most days, I'd rather punch him than play against him. But, um, but if you look at his skill of constantly moving under the basket and, and constantly playing the angles of where to get a rebound, uh, that to me is. is is, is far more important than how high you could jump. Well, Mark, I think in sports, history repeats itself. With your old jazz teams, you had a dominant leaper and scorer in Daryl Griffith, like you talked about earlier, and of course, you as the rim protector in defensive interior. So I compared your old jazz teams and this year's team, and I see some similarities. 
first off, I really like the Donovan Mitchell, Daryl Griffith comparison. Both played for the University of Louisville. Of course, both played for the Jazz. Both play shooting guard. Daryl won Rookie of the Year, and Donovan has a really good chance to win Rookie of the Year this year. And here's something else really cool that I found. Griffith averaged 20.6 points per game as a rookie, and Mitchell averaged 20.5 points per game. The big differences for the two in the rookie seasons is that, A, Mitchell led his team in scoring this year, and Griffith was second behind your former teammate, Adrian Dantley. And, B, Mitchell's teams made the playoffs, and Griffith's team won only 28 games, finishing fifth in the Midwest Division. So I really like this comparison, but then there's another thing. Your rookie year, you were the rim protector on the Jazz and finished third in the league in block shots. This year, Rudy Gobert is the rim protector for the Jazz and is also third in the NBA in block shots per game. I also see Gobert winning Defensive Player of the Year this year, like you did twice in your career. I know these are two completely different scenarios with how the team seasons went, but the stats show big similarities. Do you see any comparisons between this year's team and some of your older Jazz teams? Well, I think let's first talk about uh, Rudy and, and block shots. Uh, I, I think that, yes, um, that the culture of our team that was established back in the early 80s where it was focused on deflections and um, you know, and the, and the defensive matchup first and then trying to get easy baskets going the other end was are very similar between that team and, and the team today. Um, when you look at Donovan Mitchell and Daryl Griffith, uh, yeah, the, yeah, Griff was, was a remarkable remarkable player with incredible leaping abilities, incredible athleticism, and did a nice job scoring 20 points a game, given that we already had another player who scored 30 a game and led the NBA in scoring in Adrian Dantley. Um, but as you mentioned, you know that was not a successful team. They, they really struggled to, in, the, in learning how to win. And Donovan Mitchell, uh, I, I look at his poise and his maturity out on the floor, and I think as a rookie anyway, he probably has a better decision-making Abilities than maybe Griff did at that point in time, and again we're talking about you know two different two different eras. But uh, his ability to finish game, um, he's he probably has more ball handling skills than than Griff did, um, and his overall athleticism is just remarkable. I mean, I catch myself at times looking at things he does out on the court and say, "Wow, did I really just see that?" And I've I've seen a lot of great basketball plays in my lifetime, uh, and, uh, and 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 it's so humble uh, and um, and so dominant uh, right out of the box that um, that it's it's truly uh, a credit to to him and to coach Quinn Snyder that they've been able to put this team together and, and win like I think I don't know what it was they've won 29 of their last 35 games I think is the stat I looked at last night uh, and a remarkable run after what was a rather disappointing first half of the season and it put themselves now in, in position um, in the playoffs to uh, uh, you know to, to move up into the middle of the pack as opposed to just making the eking into the playoffs on the eighth spot uh, you know they're going to play the Thunder which is going to be a, a challenge for sure but um, it's, it's been a remarkable run and a remarkable team and, um, and, and combined with a lot of the other guys on the team like uh, Joe Ingles and bringing in Jay Crowder this year which which I thought really added a little bit of toughness to the team and Ricky Rubio um, you know they've, they've got a nice core of players, core group of players that are playing very good basketball right now. 
And I give a lot of credit for this year's uh, success to Quinn Snyder. Uh, last year, they had a similar run. They started the season out bad and then finished the season, like like you said, like 29 out of 35 and put themselves in position to maybe have a playoff spot. But the difference I really see is this team has so many good passers. Rudy Gobert is a really good passer at the five. Ricky Rubio has always been one of the league leaders in assists. Joe Ingles, who's making the Clippers seem really dumb for getting rid of him a few years ago. Uh, they're just really great passers and they know how to play. So I give a lot of credit to Quinn Snyder, and I think they can do some damage in the playoffs, like you said. But and Ricky Rubio is kind of like um, a lesser version of John Salt in the way he plays. He doesn't really look for a shot. He leads teammates. He makes good passes and likes to play defense. So, um, so I really like this team, and I think there's a big similarity between some of the older teams. And they've done it without an all-star this year, too. Correct. Um, yeah, and Ricky Rubio, obviously having played international ball and, and playing for the Timberwolves, uh, you know he's got he's got some experience, and he's never been to the playoffs before. But I think the fact that he played so much international ball, he's been in high pressure situations, and I think he'll do well. Uh, he's very wise out of the court, and as you mentioned, he knows when to distribute the ball, but he also knows knows when to take his shot. And is uh, a nice balance to Donovan Mitchell on the other side of the floor. Um, so I, I, you know, I like our chances. I think that the Jazz have a good, a good shot going to the playoffs, and the Thunder, you know, they're they're a great team. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, former Bruin Russell Westbrook is is a beast out there on the floor. But but integrating Paul George and Carmelo this year, uh, you know, they're they're got the similar record to the Jazz. So they've obviously had their struggles well, and and again, the playoffs are all about who's going to play well this week. And so I think it's going to be very entertaining series. I think the key factor in that series is going to be Corey Brewer. He played for the Lakers this year. He provides so much toughness. He just gets at it on the defensive end, and he hits big shots. So I'm really looking forward to see what he does in the series, and he may, mm-hmm. may turn the, the tide to the other team. i got a couple more topics for you, Mark. Um, so we fast forward a couple of years to the 1991-92 season. Carl Malone and John Stockton have established themselves as some of the top players in the NBA, and you have been dominating the league in defensive, defensive categories for a few years. And then you advance to the Western Conference Top Finals for the first time in franchise history after winning 55 games. What was that experience like playing for the chance at the NBA Finals and doing something that had never been achieved in franchise history? Well, you know, you bring up a remarkable season and one that was most painful for me as well because, uh, as you mentioned, that team, we were really firing in all cylinders. Uh, we had actually beaten the Chicago Bulls twice that year in our in our matchup with them, and we're feeling really good going into the playoffs. And in the conference finals against the Trailblazers, you know, which was a great team with Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter and Kevin Duckworth and Jerome Kersey, um, and that we, we, we had a great matchup there, and we had 
had a guy on our team named uh, David Benoit who had played very well against uh, Clyde um, during the season, and unfortunately his father passed that week of the of the conference finals, and he left the team for uh, a few days. And uh, Blue Edwards was the, the backup uh, two guard, who was a, a young guy at that point in time, and and um, and Clyde actually, uh, ultimately had his way with Blue and and um, you know, and they ended up winning the winning the series. But for us, it was uh, it was another one of those benchmark moments as a team where a few years later, or a few years earlier, excuse me, we had taken the Lakers to seven games in the Western Conference semifinals uh, and lost. And so that that team, to me, of all the teams I played on, I think had the best chance to go to the finals and really challenge the Bulls for the championship because we had that that kind of confidence builder of having knocked them off a couple of times. But unfortunately, the Blazers had other ideas and uh, and and uh, you know, Clyde uh, the Glide put his um, you know just just took his team to the, all the way to, to win that series. But it was uh, another one of those rubber stamp moments where people now looked at the Jazz once again as one of the elite teams of the NBA. And having started earlier in my career on a team that was you know only won 30 games my rookie year, um, it was it was the kind of the culmination of a long rise of of uh, culture and uh, general management and coaching uh, that um, that showed that you know this that we were a legit franchise. One last thing for you, Mark. Any predictions for the NBA playoffs? You know. Um, <clears throat> It's going to, I think it's going to be very interesting. You've got some teams that are really playing well that have had a great rise here this last couple of months. And, and to me, it's all about who's playing well in April. And so if you look at, you know, the Sixers, for instance, in the East, uh, see what they might do. And you've got, and you've got Toronto that's playing well that, that almost got to the dance. And, uh, um, and then I think the Cavs are a little more susceptible this year. Uh, you know, they've had some ups and downs, but ultimately never discount what we're on. And then in the West, um, you know the Warriors are a little banged up and uh, not playing too well, and um, and then you've got the you've got the the Rockets, which are just on fire. Uh, they came in here uh, against the Jazz a couple of weeks ago and just beat them to death. It was uh, it was uh, a tremendous um, uh, game, and, and James Harden is just uh, you know feared the beard. He's he's one of the best players out there in, in the league, and I think should be. Uh, you know, maybe a potential lock for an MVP this year. He's he's really that team is playing so well together. So I'm uh, looking to see what they do. But um, but again, you got Portland that's playing well and Damian Lillard, and uh, so I think it's going to be kind of a fun a fun year because I I think that there's there's some even matchups that could go either way, and uh, I think the first couple of rounds are really going to be exciting. And I don't know if you caught it last night, but the Timberwolves and Nuggets played for the eight seed. That was a great game, went into overtime, but Timberwolves won it. And well, I have the Cavs coming out of the East. Shocker, right? Um, I'm going to take LeBron 10 times out of 10. Uh, in the West, West stumps me, though. The Warriors have struggled this year to Warrior standards, which is crazy because they still won 58 games this year. And even though they dealt with injuries to all four, four All-Stars, they did that great. But the Rockets have been the best team in the NBA all year, and I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that. And it feels like their year. I'm not going to bet against the Warriors 
because they've won two in three years. But it also feels like the Rockets will give them a good test. Also, a potential Cavs-Sixers conference finals is really intriguing, especially if the Sixers get star center Joel Embiid back for the playoffs. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, they're they're one of the teams to beat in the in the West. But, but again, as you mentioned, injuries are, are playing a role this year in the playoffs. And you look at his injury and, and how he how well he comes back, and then and then Steph Curry in the West and how his leg is. And you know, it's one thing to come back from an injury and kind of get yourself in playing shape. It's quite another thing to get that little bit of timing that only comes from being back for eight or ten games and and getting your body back in the flow. Um, that uh, you know, so it'll be interesting to see which one of those guys is able to bounce back the quickest. I just remembered you talked about you had a Wilt Chamberlain story earlier. Can you share that with us? Sure. Uh, so um, you know, when I was at UCLA, uh, I was and I was playing uh, on this team that was very quick, and and it was really challenged when you're you know seven foot four to try and play in an up tempo game, and and uh, so during the summer, I was really kind of frustrated and trying to figure out where I fit in the world of basketball, and there was these pickup games at UCLA in the afternoons at the men's gym, and all the greatest players in Los Angeles showed up there every afternoon and, and played in these games. And I mean, their magic was there, and James Worthy and Norm Nixon and all these great players, and 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 I played these games every afternoon, and and one afternoon in particular, I'm running up down the court and I'm trying to catch this guard on our team who's who's playing for the, you know, the shirts or the skins, the opposing team that afternoon, and, and he's like the fastest player I've ever seen in my life, and I just can't catch him. I mean, I'm trying to chase him down the court, and and he's at the basket, and I'm barely at the half court line, and so I'm standing on the sidelines for a minute and taking a break. And I'm just kind of feeling a little sorry for myself because I'm like, you know, I'm out here, I'm, you know, I'm out here on the court, but I'm not really in the game, and, and everybody's passing me, and I'm feeling kind of like a tree in the middle of the court that everybody's just running around. And so, um, I'm uh, so I'm kind of holding my shorts there for a minute and taking a break. I feel this big hand on my shoulder, and I turn around, and it's, and it's Will Chamberlain. And Wilt had retired a few years earlier, and and every afternoon would still come down from his house up above UCLA and and work out with the young guys and he, I mean, he was just a, such a tremendous athlete even after playing for you know 12 or 15 years of the NBA and uh, and um, and so he, he grabbed me and he said Mark he said you know first of all stop trying to chase these little guards up and down the court like that's not your job he said he said come on with me let me show you what, what I think you're really good at and so he took me out on the court and he positioned me right in front of the basket and he said you know your job out here in the court is to stop players from getting to the basket your job is to make them miss their shot your job is to get the rebound and throw it up to the guard and let them go down the other end and score it. Your job is to kind of cruise up to half court and see what's going on. And it was a real life-changing moment for me because he took the complexity of basketball and all these things I was trying to do and boiled it down to one simple thing. He said, your job is to play defense. That's how you can help your team. And that completely shifted my focus about how I saw my career and what I could do well out on the basketball court. And I focused on that one thing of, of, of uh, you know, defending, and, you know, four years later, I broke the NBA record for the most blocked shots in a single season, uh, because I focused on that one thing, and so in my Four Commitments of a Winning Team book, I talk, I call that knowing your job, you know, like how many of you are running around trying to do everything when there's really only one thing you can be great at, and to get people to kind of focus back 
back in on traits and skills they already have that they just need to leverage more. And that's what Wilt showed me that day. Thank you for sharing that with us, Mark. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Ball Talk Pod. It was an absolute honor, and we would love to have you back on sometime. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Evan. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Mark. And check out his book at www.7foot4.com and on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. This has been our interview with former NBA All-Star and Defensive Player of the Year, Mark Eaton, on the Ball Talk Pod. Check us out on our website at www.balltalkpod.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and all our social media outlets. Thank you.